Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Ofsted Talks, the Ofsted podcast. Today's subject is the curriculum. Uh, I'm going to introduce my new co-host, Srina Katecha. Hi, Srina. Hi, Chris. Very nice to have you with us. Um, I've also got some fantastic guests uh, today. I've got Heather Fern and Jonathan Kay from Ofsted's curriculum unit. Do you want to say hi? Hello. Hi, both. Uh, and I've also got two fantastic school leaders to help us talk about the thorny subject of the curriculum. Uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, we've got Ruth Ashby. Ruth, over to you. Hi, Chris. Hi, everyone. I'm Ruth Ashby. I'm Senior Deputy Head at Holly Lodge High School in Smethwick in the West Midlands. I'm also Vice Chair of Governors at Mealbrace School, um, where I live in Shrewsbury. Excellent. Thank you, Ruth. And we also have Steve Maston. Hi, Steve. Hi, everyone. My name's Steve Maston. I was a secondary school head of history for about 17 years. Excellent. Welcome, Steve. Welcome, Ruth. And thanks very much to Jonathan and Heather for joining us as well. Uh, Jonathan and Heather, do you want to start just by kind of telling us in a nutshell what, what is a curriculum and why should we care? The EIF focus on curriculum is a focus on what it is that people learn, what Chief Inspector calls the substance of education. So I think for quite a long time in schools, there'd been a focus on thinking about what was quality teaching on what perhaps what teaching methods were used, um, whether there were particular uh, ways of teaching different sorts of activities which would be considered more or less effective than others. And that had meant there wasn't as much emphasis on what it was that pupils were learning and whether they were learning what they needed for success in their education and then in their lives. We all have really amb ambitious aims for children and what they might learn for their education. But one thing we do know, and we know this both through sort of logic and common sense, but also from research, is that um, if children are less successful than we would like in an aspect of their education, for example, a GCSE, that they did not have the knowledge they needed to have the success in that area. And curriculum is uh, curriculum means focusing on what it is that children need to learn step by step over time to have success in those ambitious curriculum aims or educational goals that we've got for them. Thanks, Heather. And so why do we have a curriculum unit in Ofsted and what does it do? Yeah, so we, we've really expanded the roles of our subject leads. So everything that Heather's described there, this, this emphasis on curriculum over a number of years now, and of course, the introduction of the education inspection framework, meant there's a, there's a necessary opportunity to look at subjects too, and, and just consider what it means to get better at those subjects. So our subject leads have been appointed for every area of the curriculum, and at the moment they're working on two main things. So they're focused internally on supporting our workforce, training them kind of day to day at conferences, and secondly, externally, just that work towards a subject report, a state of the nation report in each area of the curriculum. And we're, we're looking forward to sharing those uh, next year. I'm sort of interested in how does this interact with the national curriculum that all schools automatically follow? It's a really good question. It was one I was asked a lot, actually, when EIF was first launched. Um, if we think about the national curriculum, it has a set of quite high level goals that are outlined. It's quite a short document. That's one of the things that's most striking about it. Very brief. And it's got a set of kind of what could be described as high level goals in each subject. A bit more detailed for English and maths and not and really not very detailed across the other subjects. 
And that means that there's an awful lot of thinking that has to be done about what it is that children need to learn to be, get to the point where they are going to be successful in those high level goals. We know that children, that everyone makes sense of new things that they learn based on what they already know. And that basic insight about how we learn means that through children's education, step by step, there should be a curriculum which leads them towards learning what they will need over time. And th th those steps are identified by schools, but those can be towards the high level goals of the national curriculum. And in Ofsted, um, our, our own framework criteria would expect schools, even if they don't need to follow the national curriculum and the high level goals outlined there, to be thinking, designing an educational plan which is at least as ambitious. So that's the Ofsted view on <laughs> curriculum. Well, I'm sure there's lots more that John and Heather can, can say, but I want to turn to, to Ruth and Steve now. Ruth, you've you've led curriculum work in uh, in schools and and trusts. Uh, what what does it what does it mean to you? And have you what what's changed over the last few years, if anything, for you? I think one of the first sort of impacts that I personally felt was that you know I was able to be focusing on the things that I wanted to focus on, having read extensively around kind of um, you know how students learn and the importance of, of the subject specialisms and that that sort of thing and, and you know I wasn't kind of um, compelled to be looking at some of the distractions that perhaps we felt um, under previous frameworks or at least I did and I think that that being able as leaders and as teachers to focus on the substance of what is taught and the high level goals and the components that can lead students to reach those high level goals is just such a wonderful thing for us to be focusing on as a profession because you know as Heather said it allows those students to make those progress and all of those students and it, it, you know it helps us to reduce the the issue where students kind of come with less knowledge and they're less able to make progress and we have that kind of widening of the gap but it's better for staff as well you know it's just so wonderful to be able to engage with subject specialism and all these wonderful ways of looking at the world um i think that it's a really inspiring aspect of the profession now and i think you know we are so lucky to have that the other thing as well that i think is is, is important to say is we used to have this kind of mad dash towards year 11 at, at the end of the year and having curriculum reflected in the inspection framework in terms of the judgments has allowed us to you know schools who have a legacy issue around outcomes to be able to focus on implementing actions that you know with our lowest year so in secondary school you know beginning with year seven not just putting all your strongest teachers on year 11 for example but do, doing you know work that's really important and valuable but that doesn't show visibly in outcomes um so i think it's allowed us to do some of those things that uh, yeah, perhaps take longer but have uh, more benefits over the longer term thanks Ruth. steve what do you think what are your reflections on on the curriculum i i wholly concur with what um ruth said and if i if i take it back even further to primary schools um i mean i'm i'm an historian and, and classicist by by background and we know the latin derivation of curriculum being a a course or uh, like a running track and there's a starting point to that and the way that you're in the middle of the race is different from the way that you're at the very beginning of the race and i think uh, what a curriculum is is a set of promises that teachers at the beginning of the curriculum are making to teachers further into the curriculum and if we just see the curriculum as a pile of stuff like even if it's really good stuff that children are learning but that stuff is not organized in any sort of coherent sequenced way then it would be like doing the romans before you did the greeks it's very common in some primary schools because if we see them as just 
bits of pieces, topics, stuff that children learn, but there's no wrestling with, so why would you do the Greeks before the Romans? What will learning the Greeks first enable children to access in, in a more sophisticated way when they study the Romans? And I would say the same thing in secondary. So I was a head of history for a number of years. And uh, before I started working in primary schools, I've worked in hundreds of primary schools now across the country. Um, I would say as a secondary school teacher in the six or the seven Ofsted inspections that I, can I use the word endured? Um, <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> in, in the six or seven inspections that, that um, I was subject to, at no point before the 2019 framework did the inspector ever ask to see my curriculum. I was never really having a discussion about where this lesson fitted into the wider scheme, how the lesson before had enabled children to access the learning in this lesson. And so I think, I mean, it is revolutionary, too strong a word. I have heard so much positive feedback from schools about the deep dives, because if you are proud of your curriculum, if you've wrestled with not just the stuff that's in it, but the sequencing, enabling children to access future learning, then a deep dive is such an exciting uh, revolution. That's really good stuff, Steve. Thank you. And we're going to hear a bit later on from uh, some colleagues who have recently been subject to or have endured, as you say, uh, a deep dive and have got some things to tell us about uh, how that felt and, and, and how that and how that went. Um, I'm just interested in this difference between primary schools and secondary schools, because yeah, we do hear the offset framework is only designed for secondary schools. It doesn't really work in in primary schools because you know it doesn't reflect how primary schools are organised. What do you say to that, Steve? Oh, I couldn't disagree more. I couldn't disagree more. I think the big difference, of course, is that in secondary schools, the person who is designing the curriculum, be it geography or history, is a subject specialist. You would hope that they're a subject specialist. And so they wrestle with that curriculum over years and years, refining it, reflecting on it, etc. And of course, primary school teachers have to be uh, Leonardo da Vinci's. They have to be experts in every subject. And with the best will in the world, primary school teachers want to be seen as experts when they're standing up in front of their children. But you can't be an expert in everything. And so when you have a history lead or a geography lead or a humanities lead in a primary school, that's a huge undertaking if you don't feel that you're a subject specialist. And so you draw upon the expertise of, of let's say your subject association, the historical association or the other associations. And you think, so how do I organize a curriculum? Because if I get the point that it's more than just a pile of stuff and the sequencing is, the sequencing is crucial, then where do I go to draw upon advice? Where is my locus of authority for thinking about the curriculum? And so I think the, the benefits to primary schools are, are even greater um, in many ways, because after all, key stage two is the, the biggest key stage of a child's education. Absolutely, absolutely. And from a secondary lens, Ruth, you mentioned some of the some of the changes that the focus on curriculum has allowed you to make. What does has that yet fed through into impacts on on learning? Are, are, are children getting a different experience because of that? knowledge is at the heart of it isn't it and I think that you know to, ha to have all that detailed knowledge and that um, awareness of sort of debates in the subject and, um, and the confidence to talk about it with adults can only you know you can't fake it can you so it's just a wonderful thing to see. There, there can be a sense can't there that uh, you know whenever Ofsted changes its expectations that's uh, that's an issue for schools but I know that we have been keen to to help uh, school leaders and curriculum leaders navigate 
their way through this this uh, this new landscape. Um, so over the last um, few years, we've been publishing a we've published a series of research reviews. We've only got two left to go, and they're available in gov.uk. And um, the purpose of these research reviews, well, in Ofsted, when we go into schools, we want to make sure that we're thinking about what could be a quality of education or in each subject. And, and the way we're thinking about that is the best it could be, that we've got the best possible conceptual way of thinking about quality. And that meant we wanted to have a look at what research there was and what it suggested about what is a quality subject education. We, we thought carefully about how we can make these documents accessible too. So it's worth knowing with those research reviews, they're, they're pretty accessible, whether you're primary, secondary, there's a neat summary at the start, there are takeaways, it's nice and easy to read. You know, the, the listeners might might want to know as well. We've got some YouTube videos out there as well. So they're really short. Uh, they summarise uh, the research reviews. Now, subject leads just quickly and in kind of little as 15 minutes, give you the big, big kind of ticket items about their subject. And there are more videos on the way soon as well. I want to make sure that we don't give people the impression that this is all very easy and straightforward because, <laughs> uh, you know, curriculum yeah. planning and sequencing and getting it right and thinking deeply about your subject is is uh, is something that takes time and, and, and you know, a, a great deal of effort, isn't it? And I'm sure, Steve and Ruth, you've both put in that effort yourselves and also, you know, helped other people with that. Can we talk about some of the challenges of getting it right when it comes to curriculum? Steve, I'll come to you first, if you don't mind. Well, let me think of a, a school that I was in just recently, and they were teaching a lesson about Alexander the Great and Alexander's empire. Had, Alexander had conquered the Persian empire, and for years the Persian empire had been trying to take the Greek city-states into their empire. Well, just that, that, that um, sentence that I just said there, the amount of sophisticated knowledge that it takes just to understand that sentence. And these teachers in, in Enfield, they weren't giving children a definition of the word empire as if you learn the word empire by memorizing a definition of it. It's thinking, where is the first time that children in year three encounter the concept of empire? And how do we teach that? Because we know that in two units time, when they've done the Persian empire and they've done the Greek city-states and the Persian uh, Greek wars, when they get to Alexander, that word empire is going to take on another meaning. So that when they get to year four, and they're looking at the Roman Empire, we don't have to teach the Roman Empire, we don't have to teach the word empire, we're simply layering with further knowledge and look at, well, isn't this interesting year four? This empire has someone called an emperor. Now, that takes planning, doesn't it? You don't accidentally meander your way into, into um, oh, look at what we're able to do now because of what we did in year three. When it comes to, to thinking long-term about the curriculum, it's not something I would want a school to, to rush, as if suddenly you import um, these documents and suddenly you've got a fantastically well-sequenced curriculum. It doesn't always work that way. It's fascinating, isn't it? And yeah, I can see how uh, curriculum experts such as yourselves could spend hours poring over the details of how this all, of how this all fits together. And Ruth, I imagine it's, uh, it's immensely rewarding as well as uh, challenging to to be thinking in this depth about the curriculum as you are. Yeah, definitely. I think um, in terms of the challenges that schools face, I think that the, the first challenge that many, many schools face is just behaviour. Um, you know, if you don't have high, uh, fu high functioning uh, systems for behaviour so that teachers are able to have high expectations, then you can have the best curriculum in the world, but it won't have the impact that you want it to do. And also what you have is teachers sort of feeling under pressure to distort the curriculum or distort how they're going to teach the children because 
you know, oh, this will engage them or, or we'll best do a practical on Friday period five because otherwise they won't listen and that's really damaging. The headline from what you've just said, Steve, is that curriculum is just massive, isn't it? Like it's such a huge job. Just just to think about the sequencing is a huge job and to get staff to a, a place where they where they have all the tools to begin to think about that huge job you're often in a massive sort of chicken and egg scenario where you want people to kind of be learning a lot about cognition the role of memory and long-term memory and short-term memory and so on but you want people to be engaging with the subject networks uh, but you don't want to overwhelm people um, and you've got parents evening tonight and you know all the kind of realities of of day-to-day life in a school but I do think you know that if we're not careful we tend to sort of omit that knowledge building for teachers and we sort of rush towards quick fill out this template or like what's your curriculum map do retrieval practice or, or how are you going to make sure that you're providing for uh, pupils with send and it, and actually you know people will fill out those things dutifully because they're conscientious but if, if we're not feeding that knowledge by as Steve says you know engagement with the subject networks and so on the real sort of um, the benefits of, fo- of focusing on curriculum I think. Yeah I'm thinking also of pressures on senior leaders in in schools if you're a head of department and your line manager is a very good line manager, but he or she is not a subject specialist in your subject. How can senior leaders support curriculum leaders in secondary schools? And I would say one of the most obvious things that a line manager can do is to use some of that language of, so can you talk me through, why do you teach this in the autumn term of year eight? What does it build on from year seven? And where is it going to be useful in in freeing up working memory later on for children to be able to access something more sophisticated? Can you talk me through that? Now, you don't have to be a subject specialist to ask that question, whether it's in music or science or whatever. But if a subject leader can't answer that question, then I would say you're a good line manager by steering them in the direction. Well, that's how the curriculum works, doesn't it? It's not a pile of stuff. It builds on what we've done before and it enables children to access future learning. Um, I'm kind of interested in how you go about sort of tweaking and refining the curriculum once you've developed it. So how do you spot when something isn't going well and could go better? And how do you build a culture where teachers feel kind of empowered to to fess up when something isn't going so well? Yeah, I mean, culture is an enormous part of uh, making it work. And I think that's something that we can't wave a magic wand, but that's just something that we build like with our day to day interactions, but also with the sort of systems and structures that we have in the school. Things like, you know, do we have high stakes lesson observations, for example? Do we have unwieldy evidence for performance management? Because all of those things contribute to, a, a, you know, a sort of sense that ah, if this isn't working, then I'm going to look bad. Um, so I'm just going to keep quiet. And, you know, we, we need to think about that kind of that big picture. And, I, I, you know, I think the more time that teachers can spend together talking evaluating just in that normal you know that kind of staff room sort of there was a blog a while ago by Michael Fordham about um, a brown sofa in the history department office and it was just so um, evocative that just the sort of the conversations that they would just have as part as a team sort of every day actually as leaders we can create the time for those conversations by just freeing up department time. I think if if senior leaders are creating a culture in their schools which encourages departments to have conversations around the curriculum, um, I think of heads of department that I know in schools where they have the freedom 
to be able to say, we're not going to do admin if we can help it in department meetings. What I'm going to do as a head of department is I'm going to send out an article for the people in my department to read. I'm not going to expect them to do it before the meeting because they've got lots of other things going on. We're going to spend the first 15 minutes of my department meeting reading the same article about curriculum or perhaps a particular area of the curriculum. So maybe something that a historian has recently written or listening to a podcast for 15 minutes together and then have a discussion about. So how would this influence our curriculum? What does that make us reflect on? Are we teaching this with the latest scholarship um, bearing down on us? Uh, how do we reflect on the way in which that particular aspect of year nine um, relates to this in year seven because of what we've just read? Uh, and if senior leaders are making time for that culture to be celebrated rather than being seen as a luxury or an indulgence, a bit decadent to do something like that. If, if people are listening to what I've just said and thinking, gosh, that's a bit decadent, well, then we're thinking about the wrong things when it comes to curriculum. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me from what you both said that you're clearly that the, the evolution of a curriculum um, is likely to, to happen over time. It's likely to involve you know, discussion and thought, practice and assessment and uh, and so on. And Heather, I, I, I want to come back to the, the Ofsted angle on this. I want to talk a bit about you know, what, what are our expectations for what we'll see on an inspection? You know, how, how do, are we expecting perfection? here uh, or in fact do we are we able to recognize that, that as i've said these things do do take a bit of time to get to where people might want them to get to the really most crucial thing in education is that pupils are learning what they need to so that they can achieve the ambitious goals that we've got for them from their education on inspection when we're not looking for any particular paperwork or complicated planning system or codes or endless sorts of different files with different things and different things. What we want to look at is, are these pupils learning what they need to step by step? That means that they, they're going to be successful. And so that means uh, just just looking at the, your, your curriculum plans and seeing um, and talking through them with you. We, we don't have any special view of what plans might look like or any expectation with that regard, but talking to you about what your planning is and whether that planning has identified what pupils need to learn step by step towards those ambitious goals that you have for your pupils. We just know it's a particular challenge for primary schools and small primaries in particular. Just to re reassure you, you know, and as our kind of blogs have said, do keep it simple. Both Steve and Ruth have said some things that are just really useful to hang your conversations on and it's all about coherence can you describe the journey that your pupils go on in terms of how they get better at those different subjects and those are the questions kind of well, why this why now and how is what they're learning preparing for what's going to come in the future and how is what they have learned prepared them for where they are now when we go on lesson visits we're not judging teachers and we're not judging lessons no. but we are thinking about whether those pupils learning what they're learning now have been set up for and prepared for that lesson now by what's gone before. And yeah, are they actually learning it? You know, has it been learned? Have they remembered the things they need to for the lesson they're in now? Every time we have these conversations, Heather, John, uh, which has been uh, quite, you know, a lot over the last uh, few, few years, I'm always mm -hmm. taken back to my own time at school and the sharp contrast between those lessons in which I felt confident and those lessons in which I felt all at sea. 
And, you know, thinking about it now, it's it's quite clear where I felt confident and I felt motivated and I felt like I'd achieved is because of the things that we're talking about. You know, I could remember what happened in the previous lesson or set of lessons and I was presented with something to build that upon and to take it on to the yeah. next level. And those were I felt all at sea demoralized and you know frankly a bit upset was when I was you know, given a task with no background information no explanation nothing to build it on and just told to get to get on with it and I think that's you know that 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 is the impact isn't it of a good curriculum versus a weaker curriculum on the children the class of children that's the most simple um, most important curriculum planning mm. I want to be here by the end of this sequence of lessons what, shall, what do I want my pupils to have learned? And then next question, what activities are most likely to ensure they would learn that? And, and that granularity and detail, you haven't got to start from scratch. You know, I think back to my time as a teacher and a head teacher, you know, we adopted schemes, we made use of what other local schools were doing and just made it work in our context. So don't feel you've got to start from scratch. There's, there's plenty of stuff out there. It's very popular now in, in schools to use what's commonly called retrieval practice. But yet retrieval practice is misunderstood in some schools, with some people thinking that if we do retrieval practice, which amounts in some schools to not much more than just some random quizzing at the start of a lesson, that that's what the Ofsted uh, inspector wants to see. But of course, what is it that you're retrieving and why is a more important question than do you do retrieval practice? So going back to what Heather was saying there, we're not wanting to see in lessons all singing, all dancing, whizzy, explosive, kids up all over the place, having a really fun time. You know, the, the, the throwing the kitchen sink at a lesson because you know it's being inspected. It's the opposite. It's, is it obvious when you're doing retrieval practice that these are the things you want children to remember and these are the reasons why you want them to remember those things because those things that you're retrieving are going to be useful in this lesson and in future lessons rather than just quizzing for the sake of quizzing. Really helpful, thank you. I want to take a minute for the the hard pressed classroom teacher. Uh, in a primary school, they might be you know they might have been given a subject or more than one subject to lead. They're largely trying trying to survive day to day in some cases, uh, you know, with with planning and 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 delivering lessons and marking books and and so on. What can we say to people about why this is a really important investment of of time? And what can we say to school leaders about you know why why this this type of planning should be should be prioritized above some of those other activities john you look like you're eager to come in yeah I, I mean it's, it's how simple can we make this i i guess pupils deserve to have things to think with and and that's that's what makes it possible to to do all of the hard stuff in life and actually if they're, they're not given those opportunities to learn that knowledge then they're far less likely to be able to do some of the complex tasks perhaps in relation to exams but never mind that just the things day to day their opportunity to take part in conversations they might not normally be able to ruth what do you think well i'd just like to push back slightly on the first part of your question there chris because <laughs> You know, if teachers are struggling to survive, then I think that our job as leaders must be to first of all ask, why is it that they're struggling to survive and what can we take away? What can we do differently 
so that so that they have capacity to focus on something as important as curriculum. Like, I don't feel we should be kind of, and I know this isn't what you meant, but it's not a case of, you know, dig deep because this is really, really valuable. <laughs> it's like, actually, do we need to be marking books or can we be using whole class feedback or responsive teaching? How many hours does it actually take to do this? You know, is there any CPD we can put, around, put in to sort of speed things up or streamline things? Or, you know, what can we do as a school? That is the climate that teachers need in order to be able to, you know, fully engage with um, curriculum thinking. And, and then once you get that, you know, it, it does become very addictive as well. You know, I'm not saying like um, you won't get teachers who are kind of going to conferences on the weekend and reading around their subject in their spare time as well. And, and that's wonderful. And, and, you know, we're very lucky that, that there are lots of people who do end up wanting to do that in the profession. But like that can't be the expectation teachers have got to be able to do a really good job of engaging in curriculum just as part of their normal working week. So can we talk a bit about um, how different subjects are dealt with differently? So how, for example, a science curriculum, which I know, Ruth, you have more expertise on, and a humanities curriculum, which I know, Steve, you have more expertise on, might be developed differently. But can we also talk a little bit about uh, to what extent there should be or can be overlap between the two? Yeah, I think there's there's quite a few things that it's important to understand about science curriculum. Um, firstly, obviously, we've got the three sciences, physics, chemistry and biology. The way that it's examined is very yes, no, right or wrong answers. And I think that impacts a lot on the type of practice that we ought to be getting students to do. There's, you know, it, it's it's a hugely broad and wide um, discipline and students have to remember an awful lot. I think you still get sort of some residual thinking around kind of, you know, maybe Bloom's taxonomy or sort of um, literacy activities and you get sort of spurious like debates introduced or evaluations introduced sometimes that sort of go against the nature of the subject, you know, that there are certain elements of it where, you know, it overlaps with kind of um, ethics or, or work in society and so on. But by and large, it's about factual claims and um, explaining the natural world and making predictions about what will happen in the natural world. So it's important to recognise that when we are defining the sorts of quality practice that we'd expect students to be doing in lesson to learn that material. And Steve, what, how does that differ or does it differ in history and humanities? Foundational to any curriculum to think of it, not just in terms of the substantive knowledge, the what that children are learning and the order in which they're learning it, but, but also that disciplinary knowledge. And that's where line managers in secondary schools can allow their subject specialist head of whatever to think about the discipline, how it works. So for example, uh, in geography, geographers think about a sense of place in a very specific way. And when they talk about place, they don't mean location. Location is where you can see where somewhere is by its coordinates, but a sense of place is all to do with, so how do the people who live in that place understand that place? Um, how do they talk about their sense of place? And, and I, as a geography teacher, let's say teaching about the Amazon, I'm going to represent the Amazon to children, but that's not necessarily how the Amazon is. So I mean, it gets quite complex, but of course, that's why you need geography specialists to be able to understand how you teach children to describe a sense of place. Likewise, in history, we ask questions about um, causes and consequences and change and continuity and similarity and difference. But you wouldn't want to see, let's say, in a, in a, in a primary history lesson, um, children saying, so 
So do you like this period of history? What do you think of the Vikings? Would you rather live at the time of the Vikings or the time of the Romans? So we've suddenly stepped outside the discipline of history and we're now asking children to you know, give their opinions. And there's nothing wrong with, with asking open-ended questions, but they must be within the discipline, whether it's history or geography, not just engaging fun questions. Because as soon as we step outside the discipline, then that curricular thinking, thinking like historians or like geographers, is, is not being modelled and it's not being taught. It's really useful to hear Ruth and Steve um, using much of the language as, as well that you'll you'll find in our research reviews if you read them. And, and that's that's really helpful to to hear how these kind of things are, are, are washing up in the education community as well. Of course, these colleagues use these terms all the time, but but hopefully the way they've described both their subjects there is another gateway into some of our work in the curriculum unit as well. That's great to hear. Can I just give one example? I think um, Sharina was talking about it where you have connections between subjects but not because you've shoehorned them in as if cross-curricularity is the big goal but where they naturally occur so going back to that school in Enfield that I was visiting I was sitting next to um, one of the school's ministers um, over the last year and up on the board in this year four history lesson was a sentence that said Judea was a province in the east of the Roman Empire and the teacher wasn't teaching that. The teacher was then building new knowledge on that. Um, and I turned to the schools minister and I said, how much sophisticated knowledge in history and geography is required just to understand that sentence? And do you notice the teacher didn't teach any of it? Because the children are coming to this lesson with that secure geographical knowledge. So they know where to look on the map to find East. That's a simple example. But where geography and history naturally overlap, then of course those connections should be made clear to pupils. But I think shoehorning them in ends up doing a disservice to both subjects. A separate but distinct point about subject differences, I think really was highlighted during the pandemic and with the kind of urgency of catch up, because it's very easy to have um, sort of whole school messages about what catch up should be, identify gaps, um, intervene might be a kind of set of standard instructions when thinking about um, uh, catch up and that might work for maths for example or it might work for phonics where the subject knowledge is kind of relatively hierarchical you build on the next thing and then you find out if some if children have got some gaps and you fill them in whereas for subjects like history and geography and subjects where Steve does more work um, it might be that during the pandemic pupils simply didn't do the Vikings at all the instruction identify gaps well, they didn't do the Vikings, that's the gap. Assess the gaps, well, don't assess because you know they didn't do the Vikings. And um, another instruction might be make curriculum alterations. And actually that flips things because you don't want to make curriculum alterations in math, so you decide to skip fractions or in phonics, so you, describe to, you decide to skip the letter sound correspondence, mm, because it's non-negotiable, it's got to be covered and it's got to be learned. Whereas in history and geography and, and subjects of that sort, it might be possible to make curriculum alterations to sort of emphasise what might be most crucial to be able to keep going. We spoke to Felicity Hairsign, Maths Lead, and Kenneth Davis, the head teacher of Clidderston Primary School in Basingstoke, about their deep dive. With Dan Lambert, Ofsted Senior HMI Schools, and Catherine Moles from the Education Policy Team here at Ofsted.
Thanks very much, Chris. My name's Dan Lambert. I'm one of His Majesty's inspectors, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by Catherine Moles, who is a specialist advisor in Ofsted's policy, quality and training team. And more importantly, we're really pleased to be joined uh, by Ken and Felicity. Ken is the head teacher at Clitterston Primary School and Felicity is their maths lead. Ken, Felicity, it was a great pleasure of mine to inspect your school in November 2021. In terms of the deep dives, how did they uh, feel and what did they involve? Well, we knew from our phone call with you the, the day before, Dan, which was very useful, uh, which subjects were going to be the focus for the inspection. Obviously, reading, uh, which is the what's happening in all the schools. Um, and then we looked at mathematics as well, uh, being a core subject. And then we discussed the subjects that we felt were our strength. I also got the chance to talk to you, Dan, about the curriculum in general. And Felicity is our maths lead. Uh, I'm going to hand over to her to talk about her experience uh, with the deep dive. It goes without saying that when you have the offset call, you are nervous. And I don't think you can change that feeling. But after the day, it was an intense day and it was full on, but I came out with a positive feeling. Everyone was really friendly. Um, from the beginning, um, Dan, you joked about someone's laptop not working on the day and my laptop worked every single day, but that morning had decided not to. Um, but that made me feel a bit more relaxed and it was, it was more friendly and it wasn't threatening at all. Um, I had to have a meeting and a chat about maths as my subject. We talked about um, how maths is throughout the school, what the assessment is like how I planned it, where the progression is. And due to joining the Maths Hub several years ago, we are working alongside. So I'm quite confident and I was quite confident with how we set out our curriculum. So in terms of preparing for that, there wasn't so much to prepare for as we had done quite a lot of work over the past few years. Can I ask a question, Felicity and Ken, just yeah. about you, you, you both talked about feeling well prepared for, for the inspection and the subject deep dive. And you've talked about the work you've done with your staff around that. Just explain to me, was it about preparing to understand what a deep dive looked like? Or was it about preparing in terms of just being really clear about your subject and, and, and the kind of the way your subject was set up and what you were trying to achieve from it or a bit of both? I think mainly it was about our curriculum really being prepared. I mean, we I remember pre-pandemic going to a conference, an Ofsted conference at St Mary's in Southampton about what a curriculum should look like, what the quality of the curriculum is in terms of um, children should be acquiring knowledge. So it wasn't just about, you know, Ofsted. I mean, it's about getting the best from the children and, and making sure we are doing what we should be doing. So I think that that's what we mean in terms of preparation. And it, it, it took time to evolve. It's still evolving a year on after our inspection. I think in terms of being ready for the inspection as well, obviously we wanted to showcase what we've done. So we didn't want inspectors coming in and teachers and subject leaders not really being able to talk about their subjects or, or finding gaps in things. We wanted them to you know, be prepared to, to showcase what they've done and to be confident. And the same with the children as well, because we knew inspectors were going to talk to children as part of the deep dives. And so, you know, checking that the children were familiar with what they're learning, be able to be able to talk about their learning in a confident way. So preparing for me was more preparing to be able to talk about my subject. 
I'm an, ex I'm an expert of my subject. I worked really hard on it, but being able to articulate to somebody else what I've done and how it works in the school, how the progression builds from early years to year six, which we thought carefully about, how we've set out our assessments so that teachers can really see where the children are, where their gaps are. Um, it was being able to talk about that confidently. We discussed deep dives in staff meetings, which really helped us to be clear on what we wanted to share with the inspectors. Thanks, Felicity. It sounds like you were really well prepared and from memory, you absolutely were. I've got a question. In that initial discussion with inspectors, did you feel that you were able to really uh, describe and, and give inspectors a really clear picture of your subject and what they should expect to see during the day? During my subject lead chat with the inspector, she asked most of the questions that I was expecting, most of the things that we had been through during the staff meeting. Um, over the last year, I had developed a teacher assessment sheet that worked alongside our math scheme. So I was quite proud of that to show the inspector and she was willing to look at the assessment. Thanks ever so much Felicity, that was really interesting and great to hear. After those initial discussions with inspectors, um, you will have started to complete uh, some lesson visits, um, talking to pupils, inspectors would have also looked at pupils work as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So I was lucky enough to join the inspector um, on visiting classrooms to look at mathematics um, across the school, ranging from year six down to the early years. I also was able to join my English lead in our discussion with the inspector uh, about phonics and reading. And then I know the inspectors had the opportunity to talk to the children about their subjects um, hear children read and also talk to them about other aspects of their learning in school. And you are a small school uh, as well and, and having two inspectors on site for one day working with, with, with colleagues in the school uh, can be a challenge. How, how did you manage that? It, it was a challenge ensuring that my subject leads felt confident that they could speak to the inspectors on their own or whether they wanted a a senior leader and again senior management in small schools is very small I, I kind of look at everyone as being a leader in my school to be honest um, but whether they wanted someone to join them and we made sure that there was the opportunity to do that with our, our very very efficient and capable LSAs covering if needed to when, um, when the, they were speaking to inspectors. So Ken, it's interesting hearing you talking about your involvement in the deep dives because often um, in, in some schools you can find that, that head teachers feel quite removed from the deep dive process because it's all being carried out uh, in conjunction with their subject leaders or those people responsible for subjects. So it sounds like that wasn't the case for you. It sounds like you were quite involved in, in what was going on. Yes, I, I did. I did. I think the initial phone call the day before also helped because it, it gave me the opportunity to discuss things with uh, with Dan. Uh, and like I say, because we were a small school, I did join, join for the English discussion. And also I got the opportunity in the afternoon to speak to Dan about the other subjects that we hadn't deep dived in. So we looked a little bit about geography and design technology, as I recall, and looked at some of the children's work, and particularly how we were moving forward in working out how we can assess these subjects and what, and more importantly, what we're assessing in those subject areas. I was just as busy as everybody else. I didn't feel disconnected at all. 
but also I think the part of the role of the head teacher is to make sure the well-being of all your staff and to make sure everyone's Absolutely. confident and feeling good and relaxed and, and willing to uh, participate the best they can. Great to hear. That's exactly how we want it. And um, this is a bit of a rare privilege for me because I never get to see uh, the same people twice uh, when I've inspected them. So I'm going to seize the opportunity if I might. Obviously, we talked about areas for improvement, what was working really well uh, in the school and, and, and you can build on further and, and a few areas that need to address. It's, it's a good year on now. So how has the school changed? One of the areas that was identified was making sure that uh, there was consistency in subjects all the way from foundation stage to year six. Uh, we revisited in particularly our geography curriculum where the largest gap was um, to ensure that there was that clear progression as things weren't repeated unnecessarily. We've also worked a lot on our assessment techniques. We, we are very much in the, in the position that with the foundation subjects, the wider curriculum, that we don't want to be producing tick lists and check sheets. It's more about teacher assessment and getting the children to be able to you know, be able to talk about what they've learned and maybe you know, a few little quizzes involved, things like that but also that they are acquiring the knowledge and but also acquiring the skills in, in, that you need to be a good historian, a good geographer, uh, a good technician. Um, and those things are constant, constantly evolving. We haven't sat back on our laurels. Fantastic to hear. It sounds like it's been an incredibly busy year for you. It's been really, really great talking to everyone. Thanks, Catherine, for joining us. Uh, and in particular, thanks, Ken and Felicity, uh, for spending your time uh, today telling us about your experience of inspection. We wish, uh, we wish you all the best of luck for the year ahead. Mm -hmm.